Hello and welcome to this, the first episode of Bigger, Faster, Better, a new podcast box set from Energy Voice in paid partnership with Womble Bond Dickinson, which wants to find out which countries are developing the most sustainable, innovative and scalable energy solutions. What we can all learn from each other and, well, who's doing it bigger, faster and indeed better. Over the course of uh, the next five episodes, we're going to take a look at how the UK is shaping up in its race to cut emissions and move towards net zero, and how this compares with the other countries working to similar ends. My name is Ed Reed. I'm an editor here at Energy Voice, where we are leading the global energy conversation. And I'm delighted to welcome Matt Louie, partner in Womble Bond Dickinson's corporate team in London, who focuses on energy and natural resources. And joining us from the US is Dave Edwards, director for hydrogen at Air Liquid. Over the course of the Bigger, Faster, Better series, we're going to take a look at various aspects of how the energy transition is working out. And this first episode aims to look at industrial clusters, how they have a part to play, and how the UK and the US may be finding different ways to pursue this same end goal of cutting emissions. There's a short list of industrial clusters in the UK bringing together a variety of ways to tackle emissions, and they're all vying for government support. In October of last year, the government picked the East Coast Cluster and Hynet to take top billing, causing some degree of consternation amongst those not quite so fortunate and leaving something of a question mark over the next steps. These clusters are going to combine both carbon capture and storage and hydrogen as a means to cut carbon. In the US, meanwhile, some clusters have already emerged, such as petrochemical and refining facilities in the Gulf Coast. There's clear scope to leverage these groupings into tackling emissions. And furthermore, the Gulf of Mexico, with depleted oil fields and existing infrastructure, will be a natural place for CCS. There's a growing appetite for such a move. ExxonMobil took a step which would have seemed unthinkable 10 years ago, with a declaration in January that it's going to be net zero by 2050. And the fact that one of its three major divisions is now going to be low carbon solutions is a clear demonstration that it's working seriously on CCS. Matt, I'm going to start with you. Paris and Glasgow have given regulatory direction for countries around the world. But how important is this in the UK? And, and I suppose also, what role does society play? I think it's interesting listening to your introduction there. So you've zoned in straight away on what the UK government is doing. And they've obviously identified what they're calling two clusters, although really it's three, two of which are linked together, which they're bringing forward to start with. Okay, so for those of you which haven't followed this in so much detail, there's a big procurement process last year. And the government, just before COP26, quite cleverly, announced that two clusters would come forward. So the first one's Hynet up in Liverpool Bay. And the second one is a linked cluster, which brings together Teesside, or Net Zero Teesside, and then there's Northern Endurance Partnership, which is the Humber. And they're linked together because there's a depleted offshore gas reservoir, effectively, almost equidistant between the two of them, which is going to be used to store carbon. And so, I mean, what we're doing is bringing forward CCUS, or carbon capture and storage, effectively, at scale. And that's great. And there have been a lot of false starts with this technology. It's very nascent. And the government has recognised that to get it up and running, it's a natural monopoly, and it needs to work hand in glove, effectively, with a couple of projects at scale to get it running, to get the regulatory model up and running, to make it bankable, which is all good news. Pretty controversial that the Scottish cluster around Aberdeen and St Fergus didn't get taken forward to start with. And speaking to contacts in the market, look, there's a lot of disappointment there. They were as viable, particularly with the supply chain they have in oilfield services up there, as the other two that were taken forward. But 
listening to commentary in the market seems that they will probably get taken forward fairly rapidly. And the reality is the government isn't saying only two clusters to be developed. It's just saying that this is novel. We need to take two forward to start with, prioritise these. And they're incredibly ambitious. I mean, they're saying that they want to hit FID within the next few years by the middle of the decade, probably realistic, and to get things up and running construction and operation by the end of the decade and it seems that the Scottish cluster could get bundled in quite quickly and it'd be three developed in one go so that's good. You asked me about social pressure I mean there is social pressure of course there is in Europe I think there's a lot in the US as well it's it's interesting to see some of the basically nudge therapy which is going on in the industry you might have followed the judicial review which happened around the oil and gas authority and its remit around decarbonisation, which ultimately wasn't successful, but it's just nudging the industry in this direction. I saw an announcement a couple of days ago, the Oil and Gas UK, the agency body effectively, has renamed itself to be Offshore Energies UK and to encompass carbon capture, hydrogen, offshore wind. So it's all happening. I'd be interested to hear what Dave thinks. I think the the systems are slightly different in the US. Obviously, it's slightly more state by state. And I suspect there is a lot of pressure there too. I'd be interested to hear what they're doing. Yeah, it certainly is a, a slightly different uh, state here in the US. Um, a year ago, I might have said something very different than I'm going to say now. Historically, it is the states individually that lead the efforts around uh, environmental investments, around uh, policy, around uh some of the other topics that come into an energy transition. And so we see a different portfolio of policies in a state like California than we do in a state like Texas than we might see in a state like Massachusetts in the Northeast, for example, because each one has different energy challenges, each one has different energy goals, and each one has a very different portfolio of um, energy options and uh, different social pressures and and, uh, political pressures for what they're able to do within those environments. But what's happened in the last year is that now at the federal level, we see some real strong leadership steps. In fact, with the passage of the infrastructure bill, which was passed in November of this year, we see a a monumental investment, particularly in hydrogen, but with a focus similar to what Matt was describing and what you're seeing in the UK, perhaps, around the development of hubs. And with the infrastructure bill in particular, there is about $8 billion designated to at least four hubs to be formed in the U.S., whether it's four or whether it's a number larger than four. I think the the details are are still developing. We haven't gotten to the proposal process yet. That'll happen later this year. An award process would then happen over the course of the next year. So if we're having this podcast again a year from now or 18 months from now, we can talk about the, the ways in which hubs might have been prioritized and where they're selected. But what we do know is that the Department of Energy will be given responsibility for selecting those hubs. And they have some guidance in the bill on how the hub should be structured around both the feedstocks for producing hydrogen and also the application space for where the hydrogen should be used. The intent, I believe, is to demonstrate that different hubs have very different feedstocks available or very different energy resources to produce hydrogen, and different regions have different needs for how they might use that in their energy ecosystem. And so it's a it's a really novel approach and a very large scale approach, very much different than what we've seen historically in the U.S., that taking this 
hub-style approach to very large investments in a region looking at the entire supply chain for hydrogen. And so not only are we going through an energy transition, we're also going through a policy transition and a transition from state-focused to federal-focused uh, policy, for example. I suppose in that way, it, it feels very similar, I, 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 or maybe more similar to the UK approach, doesn't it? And that sort of that sort of top-down approach of, of sort of driving that that agenda from the from from the highest levels of government. Matt, what what are your thoughts? I mean, do you, do you think that this is the right way to go about it? I mean, obviously, as you say, there's there's uh, some question about which proposals go forward, and and maybe some sort of element of competition when perhaps there should be maybe more collaboration between hubs. I think the reality is is that it has to be a top-down approach because it's a nascent technology, as I mentioned, and also it needs to be developed at scale. And if you look at the different comparisons internationally, it's really around the level of government intervention and to what degree the private sector can actually be incentivized to get this up and running itself. And we in the UK have a long history of basically privatized state utilities. And so it's being set up. Certainly the carbon capture and storage model to set that up with the transportation and storage network is being run like a state utility. So I think it has to be done at scale that way using hubs. In a way, I suppose there's not really, you shouldn't think of it as a competition as such. It's just the reality if we can't build all of these together, there will be lessons learned. And inevitably in novel large construction projects, there will be problems and that will interplay with the returns model. And so it makes sense to get a couple of them up and running first to learn those lessons. And then hopefully it should be a smooth path to develop others. There probably is an element of politics, you know, which as a lawyer I probably can't get into, but around the Scottish cluster. But it seems that that will come up and running. I, I think it will do. The, the big difference listening to Dave there is he'd started by talking about hydrogen. So in the UK, really, actually, we're talking about carbon capture and storage. And if you read what the government has said, their hydrogen policy is lagging behind the carbon capture and storage policy. And what they're tacitly admitting is, for the UK, the feedstock will just be natural gas to start with for hydrogen. So it'll be blue hydrogen created by our natural gas supply and network. And it will have CCUS attached to it. So it'll be done initially in these industrial clusters. And that is quite a long way behind some other jurisdictions, at least in their planning. And there's a slightly different way of looking at this compared to what Dave is saying about the US. Yeah, I think in the in the US, we see perhaps more diversity regionally as to what resources are available. So certainly thinking about the Gulf Coast in the United States, where we already produce tens of thousands of kilograms of hydrogen per day in pipelines, going to refinery applications, going to ammonia production, going to our traditional industrial sectors. It's one thing to look at how do you now bring a low carbon aspect to that? How do you bring an energy transition where you start to bring in things like transportation sectors and industry sectors to use that same energy source? How do you make investments? And does it require a transition of existing assets to be low carbon, adding carbon capture, for example, to those existing facilities? Or does it mean building new facilities and bringing perhaps the, the wind power that's uh, a few hours away in the north down in into that same Gulf Coast and now augmenting the hydrogen production with, uh, with wind power that's available? And then if you look at a place like California, where you have decades of investment in things like wind and solar. And so you're starting with a, a more renewable grid and a grid that's likely to, to, to continue to lead the nation in renewable content. Can you tie into that as a resource for new hydrogen production? Overall in the US, 
95% or more of the hydrogen that's produced comes from fossil-based production. That's all going into industrial assets. What we're looking at in the U.S. now is investment in these new production methods. And the question is, what should those production methods look like? Will they have a regional nature to them? And, and how do you best do that from a policy and from an implementation perspective? And I think what, what, what is interesting about our hub model is that it will demonstrate that different regions will have different strengths and weaknesses to do that with the flexibility to show perhaps what's, what success looks like. The, the other thing that I would like to point out is that there will be no energy transition in the U.S. if it's not ultimately driven by private investment, that things like these hub investments uh, can be a fantastic opportunity to accelerate the initial investment and to accelerate the, the usage, perhaps. But the outcome has to be a market that then allows for private investment to make it growth, sustainable, low cost, low carbon, and meet the needs of, of society. And, and that's really the challenge with the hubs. Can you result in a market? Because today our market for low carbon hydrogen in, in industrial sectors, in transportation sectors, is, is quite low. And that's the part that really needs to change. Uh, Dave, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with you for a moment. Obviously, the question of technology, I think, is kind of coming up here. And obviously, there's a sort of an interplay between private investment and, and, and technological advancements. And the, and the US seems to be really good at, at, at driving sort of technological steps. I mean, I think, you know, clearly, you know, looking back sort of 10 years, you know, the, the sort of the emergence of, of fracking, you know, in the, in the energy industry, like a fantastic sort of demonstration of a sort of private investor and, and a degree of, of, of sort of state uh, support going into that. So, I mean, I guess, what, what, what do you think makes the US a, a, a kind of such a good place to, to drive these sorts of technological leaps? I think in the end, it comes back to that private investment side that that those opportunities that that result in growth, stable markets and investment opportunities are the ones that not only get the support of the financial markets, but also of the policymakers. They, they recognize the tie to to jobs and economy. They recognize the regional nature of that. Um, and, it, and it tends to drive things more at the forefront than, for example, a, a big picture energy policy or energy roadmap, which might be important, but isn't necessarily going to be the driver that the, that the economic and financial side will really have in making that transition. We, we have many of the same goals that other countries have for decarbonization, but the pace at which it will happen will be entirely determined by the private investment side of the market. And, and that to a large degree driven by early stage policy and, and, and some of the other things that we're doing today, hopefully. Matt, I mean, looking at looking at what Dave's been saying about sort of private investment going into technology, I mean, do, do can we can we foster that same degree of of of, of innovation in the UK? I think we are to a degree. So if you look at the model they're putting together, so I mentioned transport and storage. So I mean, the idea is to attract private sector investment. And actually, the parties that tend to be invested in this at the moment are basically the upstream oil and gas industry, because those are the ones that have the existing depleted gas reservoirs and have been applying for change of usage licenses, for example, to flip them to carbon capture. And similarly, they'll have offshore pipelines that need to be repurposed. And they will be leading the transportation and storage development. And the idea is that, like a lot of our regulated privatised state utilities, that down the track, you will see the asset management industry, the pension funds and others internationally as well, because there'll be big, big projects coming into these and taking a stake, an equity stake, because they are attractive investments with long-term stable returns. So I think we do it, but we do it in a slightly different way. And we're a smaller country as well. So 
inevitably it's going to be seen to be a little bit more top-down orientated, I think. But, I mean, the challenge for us is getting from where we are now to an operational stable model with the right incentives in place, I think, for us. Sure. And, and I suppose, uh, that given that sort of question about, about progress, uh, do you think that the speed is, is, is happening at the right sort of pace? I mean, obviously, looking at the, kind of the questions of sort of FIDs and, 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 and sort of which clusters are going forwards, are we, are, we, are we on track, do you think? I think we're on track to develop pretty rapidly. Are we going to hit FID in the next couple of years? I think that's that's very ambitious. I think to get a couple of these clusters up and running by the end of the decade could be achievable if everyone moves quickly enough. But a lot of it relies on the regulatory developments to happen. So the government have set out a skeleton framework, but it still remains to be seen how some of that detail will work in practice, particularly around the returns model and, and how these projects are going to get funded. And the blend in there, you know, there's some grant funding available, there's going to be returns paid through utility returns. All of it can happen in, in theory, but we are going to have to be as efficient as possible to get this up and running. And we've seen in comparable large industries, for example, offshore wind, that actually these projects can take an awful long time to get off the ground. So in theory, we are making the best progress we ever have, and it's great to see, but it will remain to be seen. You're going to have to ask me again in five years where we've got to. <clears throat> I mean, I suppose, I suppose that's, that's an interesting question, is that, that question about sort of the way in which regulatory currents, moods change, isn't it? I mean, obviously, the US just signing up again to the Paris Treaty you know, agreements. Dave, what are your thoughts about if there is a change of uh, of administration, you know, the next sort of presidential election, say there's a change in in the in the legislature, is there is there is there a risk that maybe the mood moves against this sort of massive infrastructure spending, these 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 billions of dollars that maybe seem to be needed to be to to sort of trigger these uh, these industrialization hubs? I think in many ways there always is some risk with policy changes or things happening with a with a, a change at, at the highest levels or even at the state levels, for example. And from a private investment perspective, we're looking for stable markets, ones that we can make investments that will have returns over decades. And in order to do that, we need to be able to sort of foresee those um, opportunities. But I think that uh, in the US, both parties, in fact, everybody is in general agreement that an energy transition will occur. What the policies are necessary to get there, there might be some disagreement in, but the idea that it will ultimately be driven by private investment and by the opportunities that private investment brings, I think is a, is a universally agreed position. Whether that's done by a funding opportunity from the Department of Energy to kick things off that we're seeing today, or whether it's done by longer term policies that might include things like tax incentives or other um, ways to, to value or devalue carbon in the market, for example, these are likely to be supported broadly. We've already seen some policies in the US, for example, the low carbon fuel standard, which is in place in California and a few other states almost overnight drives changes in behavior and how fuels are provided into those states. And it's all because of the policy position on economics that's driving that rather than a policy position on economic, on rather environmental changes, for example. So, so being able to have an environmental structure that's consistent with the economic outcomes and have that have long-term outcomes, critical to some of the policies that are going into place. And as they start to shift from state to federal level, then it, then it needs to be very flexible to work across different regions. One of the challenges we face with federal policy, for example. We've seen in, in, in the UK support for sector CCS, for instance, 10 years ago that came up and then, and then went down. Do you think that, the, that there's a risk 
in uh, in, in in the UK on, on on those fronts, or do you think that there's a sort of a broad political alignment that there seems to be in in, in the US about about sort of moving in the same direction, whoever might be uh, at number ten? I think there is broad political alignment, actually. And I think certainly the last few years have turned the needle internationally, but in the UK as well, so far that the the mandates of decarbonisation are are unavoidable. And so the discussion, the framework of the discussion is now around how we're going to get there and the best route. It's perfectly possible that the CCUS model doesn't take off simply because... It is a controversial technology. It's seen really as a bridge, effectively, because it is allowing gas power stations, industrials to continue emitting effectively and to take, say, around 90% of the emissions out and store it underground. Okay, So it's not the same as removing the the problems there and removing the actual emission of carbon entirely. So there are risks inherent with it. But I think you'll find that... Any government is faced with a realization that actually, you know, we're a long way away from having, for example, heavy industry having an alternative feedstock. We're a long way away from having electricity generation purely from renewables with all the challenges there is around intermittency of offshore wind. So actually, I think we probably will get there. And so I don't really see danger particularly with the trajectory of decarbonisation it's more around the detail of how we achieve it I think is where we are at the moment and I think from a from a US perspective I think you know carbon capture is a really good example the technology development the investments we've made on those technology fronts similar to what's been done in a lot of other um, countries around the world the technology is ready we can deploy it at scale but is there an economic incentive to do that? Is there a mechanism that 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 allows us to do that in a way that we can do it at scale? Uh, CCUS, I, I agree, is a potential bridge technology, but it's a big bridge, right? It, it allows you to do very big things very quickly. If we compare that to, for example, some of the alternative production processes for hydrogen, if you have a choice between uh, adding carbon capture to an existing production plant versus installing a new electrolyzer, for example, in the same region, the scale of the electrolyzer compared to the scale of the carbon capture project is actually very different. You would be building the first of its kind electrolyzer plant that might be 10 to 100 times bigger than anything that's out there on the market in order to have the equivalent impact that a single carbon capture project might have. And so the ability to put single projects in that have these huge impacts is really one of the one of the real um, upsides with the carbon capture side. You can do things very large, very quickly, and that's important because once you have those mechanisms in place, you have a much bigger knob that you can start moving the rest of the energy ecosystem towards low carbon. If you're starting with very small projects and very small projects that then grow eventually, much harder to get that foothold and, and start to really move the, the users of that low carbon energy, for example. Yeah, and the the other thing which actually I didn't mention, and we talked about the private sector. So it's interesting to see right across large renewable energy projects and energy transition projects in Europe and certainly in the UK, the private sector is getting very heavily involved and particularly actually the upstream oil and gas companies. So we've seen this with offshore wind and then bidding in for seabed auction rights at pretty astronomical prices to develop offshore wind projects. And we're seeing it with CCUS. I mentioned that a lot of the sponsors behind these projects are the oil and gas companies with deep capex, deep pockets, and they're getting involved and they're driving some of this development. And there are challenges inherent to that. 
But again, it's moving the dial in the right direction in a way that five years ago you probably wouldn't have seen. And that probably is a bit of a difference between us and the US because I don't think you're seeing so many of the traditional upstream industry and the oil majors getting involved, certainly not in the degree of investment we're seeing in northwestern Europe in some of these renewable technologies. Matt, I think that's a really interesting point. And I think that that move into new technologies from, from maybe from some of the old guard, from the oil companies, has been a really interesting point that we've seen uh, come up over the last couple of years and, and clearly a, a real driving force, particularly in Europe. We're going to dig into this a little bit more. We'll be back after this short break. Womble Bond Dickinson is a transatlantic law firm with a keen focus on the energy sector. As part of its Rebuild Britain campaign, Womble Bond Dickinson is looking at the energy transition and its role in the UK achieving its net zero ambitions. The Bigger, Faster, Better podcast series will explore how the UK performs in comparison to other countries in key renewable technologies. Dave, on that note about corporate strategy, I mean, in Europe, we're seeing a move from oil companies to, to broaden their focus. I mean, Total Energies, for instance, sees itself as an oil and gas company, but also a power company. We've not really seen that in the US. Chevron, Exxon, they've talked about CCS, but not really that move into power. Do we see that need or, or does that just mean that other companies come in to fill that gap? I think we'll see a little bit of both, but I think it's very clear that the existing petroleum industry has a huge part to play in the early stages of transition and in the long stages of transition. We might describe them as energy companies rather than petroleum companies by the time the transition is done. And those that, that do that successfully, they will exist and they will be in this energy sector. They have a big role to play early on because as I pointed out with things like carbon capture, um, they have the ability to deploy large projects early. And that's important. Um, they also have a lot of the technologies for things like underground storage and for exploration and for site studies and things that that clearly that expertise already exists in those fields, for example. And leveraging that um, becomes a make, makes for those market changes uh, to happen much more quickly. At the same time, there are great opportunities for new technology developers, whether that's on the hydrogen production side with new electrolyzer technologies or whether that's in the application space of the transition of mobility from IC engines to fuel cell vehicles, for example. We see a lot of everything from startups to the big traditional companies making those investments and making the transitions. And I think like any other transition, you know, those companies that can be agile, those companies that can make the right moves early, and those companies that can recognize where their skill set and their investments already overlap with the new outcomes, those will be the ones that I think make the big difference early and are most likely to be what we call energy companies at the outlet of, uh, of the transition. Sure. Matt, I mean, looking at, at the UK and, 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 you know, Obviously, we've looked at some of the some of the the ways in which you know things are maybe sort of moving forwards and succeeding. But what do you think about what's what 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 sort of challenges are there ahead? You know, what's what's slowing the 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 shift to these new developments? Is it is it access to capital? Is it is it regulatory problems? Is it uncertainty about the future? Is it legal issues? What what do you think standing in the way? I think you've identified three pretty good <laughs> points there. I mean, everything's coming together effectively. So. I mean, it, one of the things I have found interesting, so where the government's got to at the moment, so we've got these clusters awarded and there's a two coming forward. And then they've been running a process which has just finished where they've been asking for bids from basically the emissions industry. And that are the, the chemicals companies, the industrials, the steel manufacturers, but also 
the gas power stations to apply for a mixture of what we're calling contracts for difference, so revenue support effectively, to often retrofit CCUS kit, which is coming in. And certainly for the industrials, some CapEx grant funding effectively. But it's been oversubscribed, we hear. The government is going to announce, I think in May this year, maybe a bit later, who's been given an award. And I suspect that they might actually have to raise the total amount that they're going to. And the people that have been invited to apply are basically all within the cluster hubs, effectively. So, I mean, that's great. There's lots of interest around there, but it points to the dangers of getting through the regulatory piece, so the revenue support. And the the item I'm talking about there is on the emission side. And I was touching before on the transportation and storage side for CCUS. There are two interlocking regulatory pieces there and it is a very fine balance getting the right incentives and support in place to get the market up and running so that's a huge risk getting the right amount of capex in place you mentioned i mean the government's announced about a billion sterling fund for ccus capex development there will be some more for hydrogen as well but getting those right incentives in place to start with because a lot of the returns won't start flowing until the projects are up and running. So there's a big risk there. And then overall, just timing risk of getting this all up and running in time effectively is there. So there's a huge blend across the piece, actually. And getting all of this to fit together and understanding actually where the economic incentives and drivers and support are. And the thing is, is it can be cut differently in different jurisdictions. And you'll find that the way these projects get separated legally, the way government support flows in and the way private sector investment flows is all structured slightly differently in different areas. And so if you look at longer term market players, if you speak to any of the big investment banks or the IFIs, the DFIs that might get involved in some of these projects down the track, what they're asking now is how do the returns model stack up? How can I invest here? And yet how can I model this economically? How will it work? And the answer is, well, there are lots of ways of cutting it. This is what we're doing in the UK, but compare it internationally. And everyone's trying to get their heads around that at the moment. It's quite detailed, that response. But I think that's probably where a lot of the long-term players are are thinking. For us, I think, uh, so I'll I'll come at this from the hydrogen perspective, and I'll come at it from the perspective of a hydrogen supplier into the market. There's both supply-side challenges and demand-side challenges that can be addressed at can help ensure that this acceleration and this transition happens. On the supply side, the technologies are are known. We we know how to produce hydrogen at scale. We know how to do it at low carbon. We know how to convert existing assets. But are there markets available that will allow us to do that at the added cost that will come from a shift to renewables, for example? There will be a cost factor. As we think about hydrogen, not as an industrial feedstock, but now as a transportation fuel, for example, as we start to displace gas and diesel, Can we do that in a way that's cost effective from a supply chain perspective? And can we do it at the scale that's needed? I think the answer to that is yes, from a technology perspective and yes, from a capability within the the U.S. perspective. Is there a market that will drive or enable that level of investment is the question mark. So now you look at the demand side. What are the investments or what are the incentives or the disincentives in the transportation industry, for example, to shift to these new uh, zero emission vehicles? Um, There are some states that have progressive plans around the fuel, for example, the LCFS that we talked about in California, for example. There are some vehicle incentives, but we don't have consistent national policy. Um, A fleet operator of heavy duty vehicles in the U.S. 
doesn't have a uniform incentive to invest in the new vehicles or in the new operating costs of fuel, for example. And these are both going to be more expensive in the early days. The solutions to a large part will come with scale, but you can't get to scale without having economics that makes sense initially. So having policies that enable early adopters that allow for scale to develop and then establish a market that can be invested in for the long term is really the, the tricky transition. Where do you put that on the demand side? Where do you put that on the supply side? How do you balance that in a way that with the with the limited funds that you'll have available in a budget? And how do you do that in the long term with a policy that has a combination of incentives and disincentives for the transition? Very delicate balance to get that right. Yeah, it's, it's probably also interesting to look at our hydrogen industry as well. So I've talked a lot about CCUS, but Breaking down what Dave was saying there about the different subsectors where we can use hydrogen. Well, the one they're focusing on at the moment is heavy industry and probably blue hydrogen to decarbonize and to decarbonize some of those feedstocks as well. But beyond that, we're looking to a degree at transportation. There's a little bit looking around, say, return to depot bus transportation because the problems around having refueling depots are, are to a degree got over effectively because you can have one centre there, and possibly around marine transport. And there are some low-level government grants and incentives around there and around small demonstration projects for local towns and villages. But beyond that, there isn't a lot going on, certainly with, say, domestic heating which people have talked about a lot, and it's been in the news an awful lot over the last year or so, and people saying, well, we could build a hydrogen network just as we have a methane gas network effectively. But all the government is doing is, at very early stage, looking at potentially blending up to 20% hydrogen into our current network, because you can do that without replacing the existing piping industry, without having everyone getting new gas boilers within their homes, because we generally all have individual boilers within our properties. But it's very, very early stage. And we're looking into the 2030s really even to get that done at scale beyond anything else that might be thought of in the future. So I think the government's quite realistic about what can be achieved, but we can certainly go a bit faster. And in terms of, I suppose, sort of driving that change, isn't it? I mean, who takes that decision about whether, you know, hydrogen should go into the pipeline network, into heavy industry, into long distance trucking? Dave, what do you think about, about who takes that on? I mean, obviously... There seems to be a, a number of different states who will have different perspectives. And the federal government has a sort of an overarching perspective. But it sounds like you, you may end up with a lack of sort of coherent leadership. You can. And one of, the, one of the nice things about hydrogen is that it's very local. You need to produce it locally. You need to use it locally. And so you can optimize it for the existing feedstocks. You can optimize it for the existing energy challenges. But very quickly, you start talking about a national network and perhaps even a global network of supply. As we think about heavy duty trucking, for example, um, there are some places where you can take a local perspective, maybe in and out of port areas, for example. But as we think about long haul trucking in the US where trucks are traveling thousands and thousands of, of kilometers and miles around the country, you need a distributed network, you need a consistent fueling, you need to have consistent policy that enables that to work everywhere. Similarly, if you think about um, displacing natural gas in the natural gas networks, this can be demonstrated locally, but really needs a regional and then eventually a national policy on how that can be done. One of the really interesting things about the potential for natural gas displacement is um, the scale that it could bring. So with just a few percentage displacement of natural gas in our existing systems with hydrogen would increase our hydrogen production needs dramatically. And while that might not be 
the best solution from either an economic perspective or from an environmental perspective. By making a regulatory change like that, across the board, you're requiring a huge investment in hydrogen production. And once you have hydrogen in a region, that hydrogen is equally available for all of the other potential uh, industrial applications, transportation applications. And so as we think about some of these national problems, they bring with them the need for hydrogen to be considered no longer in this local mode, but in a national mode. And that really brings some value when we think about the scale solution, the scale problem. It really is the, the, the ultimate problem with all of these energy transitions is the scale at which you need to do it. And the bigger you can start, the better, because it, it, it enables your other adopters to, to jump on board when it's appropriate. Looking at what we've discussed today and, and, and the way in which you've, you've set out the U.S.'s perspective, what do you think that the lessons are that we can take away from the U.S. experience? What can you say to, to us, to the world at large? Here is how we've done it and, and, and here is, here is uh, what we've learned. I think the, the biggest takeaway I would have from, from my U.S. experience is that the appropriate balance of policy is really critical in these early stages of development. There are things like funding technology demonstrations, establishing new markets, investment from the state and federal level in things like infrastructure and the other things that enable a market. But then those policies need to be balanced by the things that allow a market to grow beyond what, what can be done with simple state and federal budgets, for example. So things like uh, tax incentives or other regulatory requirements that drive you toward um, particular outcomes become really important because they scale nicely. Things like the carbon requirements in fuels, for example, things like how do you bring in the cost of carbon or the credit for carbon um, into a market and using that in a way that's uh, creative but allows it to scale with the market is really important and making the transition between those two. You, you must have those first stages of market development, and then it has to be followed by those policies that enable market growth and, and, and comes with the, the private investment that follows. Getting that balance right is everything for us in the US, it appears. I'd agree with quite a bit of that. I mean, we've talked about scale already, which is why we're using clusters for CCUS, and scalability is everything. We talked about that with hydrogen as well. If we're going to get to some sort of national network, if that is ever efficient, certainly for domestic heating. It's all about building scale over time. So I agree with that. We talked about incentives and certainly the European and UK methodology behind certainly say carbon pricing is very finely balanced and getting the right incentives in place and the amount of carrot and stick there needs to be to incentivize everyone to get involved in these projects. So for, for example, with, with CCUS, we've been talking about a utility model We'd be talking about supporting the emitters to get involved in the system. Particularly for emitters, it's quite a complicated business case to put together around carbon pricing on the one side, but then the contracts for different providing revenue support, potential government capex involved. Uh, that is quite finely balanced and complicated and getting it right is difficult. Uh, there are other things as well. I mean, one of the things we haven't talked about is the supply chain effectively. And so it's fairly well documented that the UK, although it is a market leader in the deployment of offshore wind, for example, hasn't actually generated as much supply chain opportunity and domestic jobs and revenue as it could have done. And so the government is trying to onshore some of that in what it's doing in CCUS and hydrogen. There's going to be a first mover advantage to doing it. And so there should be lessons learned that. And also just 
getting industry to talk to each other. I mean, Dave spoke a little bit previously around the different opportunities and the different sector players, but it can be challenging to get, say, the oil and gas industry to talk to, for example, specialists involved in hydrogen development, some of the renewable specialists, because they come at things from a slightly different perspective. And actually, we need to get bodies, I know the OGA are trying to do it, to get everyone to talk to each other effectively and work out how they can maximise the potential, particularly when in the UK, a lot of the decarbonisation projects are all offshore effectively, the large scale ones. And we need to think about how best to maximise the opportunity there. And it links back into the supply chain, which we've just been talking about, because there are crossover opportunities, particularly with services around the offshore wind industry, around carbon capture, for example. And we need to work on that. And uh, the OGA there being the Oil and Gas Authority. But I think that's about all the time we have for today. Bigger, faster, better is about finding how different countries are pursuing those same goals through different means. And I think there have been some really interesting insights today about the industrial policies of the US and the UK and how they're advancing. I think it's really clear that both countries are keen on driving decarbonisation through these industrial clusters. And it feels like the UK is taking a bit of a lead on things at the moment. The selection of the clusters have been carried out and there's a broad agreement about how the plans are going. What's striking about the US, though, is that sheer scale of investments that the government's deploying through the, uh, the, the Build Back Better legislation. I suppose the, the, the sort of point of similarity is, is, is really that there's a clear amount of political support from, from both the US and the UK governments, which I think is going to be really important, uh, and, and particularly internally. I think, you know, obviously governments will come and go as we, as we, we go along this, this road to net zero. But along the way, it seems like there's broad agreement that decarbonisation and industrial clusters are here to stay. So to our listeners, uh, please let us know your thoughts uh, on this topic through the Energy Voice social media channels, or you can email us at outloud at energyvoice.com. Uh, and if you want to be part of the conversation and, and share your story with the energy industry, you can also email outloud at energyvoice.com. Uh, while I'm here, I'd like to take this opportunity to remind you to tune in to our regular weekly news episodes. Uh, if this is the first time you've found Energy Voice Out Loud, you can tap the follow button in your podcast app to get uh, every episode of Bigger, Faster, Better, as well as the episodes that drop every Friday, in which I and, and other Energy Voice journalists talk about the, uh, the issues of the day. So next up, uh, Bigger, Faster, Better is heading to the UAE to discuss hydrogen. But for this, uh, this is the first episode of our new podcast series, Bigger, Faster, Better. I've been Ed Reed. Thank you for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.